Good morning, church family. If you will, open up your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. And uh, I'll give you a moment to get there, but while you're turning or scrolling or however it is you're going to get to John, chapter 12, uh, I want to ask you this question. I don't know if your family's like my family or if your relationship to others or your kids is like my relationship, but I like to play... I like to play games with my kids like, you know, what if you had uh, one food item that you could eat for the rest of your life or if you're deserted on, a, on an island somewhere and you could take, you know, one object with you or one book with you or one movie with you that you had to watch for the rest of your life, what would it be? And it's always interesting to get the different responses from the different kids or really anybody you're playing that game with. But one game that we've played is if you could go back in time to, to any event at any point in time, and you could either be a participant in the event or just a fly on the wall, what event would it be? You know, and I can't remember all the answers that, that, that I've heard from people that have asked that, but I got to thinking as I was studying for this text today that the triumphal entry of Christ is one event that I would really, really want to be a part of. I mean, we've looked at Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and that's an event that I would want to see. But the triumphal entry of Christ, that's definitely one that I would want to be a part of. Because as I'm reading the text, I mean, this is a party. This is a massive celebration of these people coming together in belief and celebrating Jesus. Celebrating what Jesus has done, celebrating who Jesus is. And and it's just a, a monumental occasion. And so... That's what we're going to talk about today, but I want to help set things up a little bit. But before I do that, I want to share with you my objective. My objective is this. I want to challenge believers to consider who they believe Jesus to be. So I want to challenge you, believer. I want to challenge you to consider who you believe Jesus to be. And the reason that I arrived at that objective is because as we look at this text, you're going to see a massive crowd, a lot of people that all seem to be gathered with one common purpose under one common theme or objective, and that's to exalt the Messiah, the one who has come to save them. But at the same time, their objectives were different because what they thought Jesus was saving them from was divided. Or at least they were divided in their thinking. So we'll get to that in a minute. But if you've, if you've turned there now, I want you to, to read with me or just listen to me as I read. So here's the text. Here's how we're going to set this up. We're just going to go through verses 12 through 19. So listen to this. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Okay, so this is the feast of tabernacles this is a time during Passover and Jesus is about to arrive on the scene and all these people have seen great and wondrous works of Christ to name a few they've 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 seen the feeding of the 5,000 they've seen the healing of the nobleman's son they've seen all of these things there were probably people there that saw Jesus turn the water into wine at the wedding at Cana and most importantly, these people probably had just seen Jesus, I, I shouldn't say most importantly, but most recently, these people have just seen Lazarus raised from the dead. So it's kind of the one that takes the cake, right? So they're gathered, they've witnessed these things, they're believing in Jesus, they're believing that he has the power to deliver them, and this is the context. 
So the next day, again, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So you get the scene, right? This large gathering of people who have witnessed what Christ has done, or at least they've heard story passed down orally of witnesses who had seen what Christ had done by way of his miracles. But I want to set something up first. This is not going to be a large teaching point, but I just want to mention it as we get into the text. And it's important that you understand all the times that the religious leaders tried to tried to capture Jesus, all the times that they tried to ensnare him. If you can recall, if you've been with us throughout this whole uh, series of John, um, you, you'll remember all the times that they tried to get him, but it said a time had not yet come. Over and over and over again, they try to ensnare him, they try to capture him, but the scripture says his time had not yet come. Well, what's interesting now is that Jesus is going back into the belly of the beast. Jesus is going in on his own terms. And Jesus is initiating something that will inevitably lead to his capture and then lead to his death. But this didn't happen because this was the clever plotting or planning of those who sought to kill him. But this is because Jesus does things on his own terms. And again, that's I already talked about that last week and some even before that. So I'm just reminding you here, Jesus is entering here not on the cleverness, not on the wisdom or the wit of those seeking to kill him, but on his own terms, by his own decrees, by his own sovereign will, he enters into the city. So you need to understand that these crowds have assembled, these crowds are celebrating him, and the scripture says that they start to wave these palm branches. Now in Luke's gospel, it talks about um, those that would take their garments and they would lay them on the donkey or the donkey's colt or they would take their garments and they would put them on the ground so that Jesus could pass by on top of them to, to show their love, to show their, uh, their respect and how they would honor him as the one who had come to bring salvation. And so, I mean, just, I don't know how many people, but look, just droves of people are gathered together. And I want you to keep it, this in mind because I won't really highlight it. You have to consider who are there as spectators watching all of this unfold. The Pharisees. Presumably Caiaphas. And all of these are watching with absolute jealousy as this ticker tape parade 
as these people have assembled together to show their respect, to show their gratitude, to show their thanks in great celebration of the king who has come to bring about salvation. So what I want to do today, I want to take this story, this context. It's easy, it's not much. I want to share with you a few, a few items or a few elements that are embedded into the story. And once we get through that information, I want to show you what we do with the information after that. So this is going to be very much a deductive sermon. I'm going to share with you information, and then at the end I'm going to come back and say, here's, here's the so what factor. Here's what you're going to do with this information. So let's kind of walk through the text, and you can see it just as I have seen it. So the story is they're gathered together, and they're waving these palm branches. Christ is about to enter the scene. Now, he has not entered the city yet. They're there waiting on him to arrive, and they're waving palm branches. Now, this has significance. Let me share this with you. This was an expression of joy. And perhaps you've been to an Easter presentation at a church or your church does an Easter presentation and you see in the dramatic interpretation of this biblical event, you see people waving these palm branches. Yes, they do so because it's depicted in the text, but it's depicted in the text because it shows us something very significant. It shows us an absolute expression of joy. And where this comes from is the book of Leviticus chapter 23 Verse 40. Now the context of that is Jesus, I'm sorry, or God is giving instructions through Moses with regards to how to observe the Feast of Booths or the Feast, feast of Tabernacles or, or Sukkot. And so what would happen is the children of Israel back then when this was recorded by Moses, the children of Israel obviously had their time in the wilderness. And in the wilderness where they would stay, they would set up these booths. All right, this wasn't uh, this would, they were, these were not super great conditions, okay? Um, but this is where they would live for the 40 years that they were there. Now, fast, and what the Lord would tell them to do is, is during that time, it said in Leviticus 23, verse 40, it says, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees. All right, this is, this is their instructions on how to celebrate. Listen, you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Now these are, these are instructions given in the book of Leviticus. But this is exactly why the crowds of people grab palm branches to to, to wave in the air as Christ is about to enter the scene. They do this to show their great joy. They do this to honor the Lord. Now, this was commonplace in Israel. You know, every year they had a Feast of Tabernacles, a Feast of Booths, uh, uh, the, the, a Feast of Sukkot, and this happened around our October. And let me just read to you a few things um, so that you can understand or get a picture of where this comes from. It was held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and the olives were harvested in Israel. This was a time to thank God for all of the preceding year's provisions and to pray for, uh, for a good rainy season that would, come, uh, that would come up, which lasted from October through March. The Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan. 
it was then that God would periodically make the Israelites live in booths. Now, ultimately, this celebration was for the purpose of commemorating the grace of God in watching over the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness for those 40 years. So this was just a time of celebration, a time of remembering. And they would grab these palm branches as an expression of great joy. Joy in what? Joy in the grace and the provision of God. So here we are, first century, many years after this was recorded by Moses in Leviticus. And they're waving these branches as an expression of joy for the grace of God, for the delivering power of Jesus Christ as he's about to deliver them. But the question is, from what? I said there was a group there, and everybody was believing, but their belief was divided. We'll get into that in just a second. Not only were they waving palm branches, but they were also singing Hosanna, or saying Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now, or save, pray. When, when, when this is recorded in Psalm 18, this is an expression, this is a request that God might help, that God might deliver, that God might save. But over the centuries, the word kind of took on new meaning. And so when they're singing Hosanna, they're not saying, hey God, please deliver us. They're expressing great joy as God being the deliverer. And it may not seem like it's much of a difference, but it is. One is saying, hey, please help, please help please help the other is saying hey our helper is here our helper our, our helper has come imagine someone who's about to jump into the water and they say hosanna or save me save pray save now but then you have someone that's in the water and they've been given a life preserver and they are safe and they say hosanna you see there's a difference one is showing you are our deliverer you have delivered and you're giving them credit for that. The other is saying, I need help. I'm not saved yet. You see, so there's a difference. So this crowd, when they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, they're not making a request that he might deliver them. They're actually showing gratitude and thanks to him as the deliverer. I mean, they have great hope in him. And this is how this is expressed to them. That word Hosanna only appears once in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 118. Now, this is where the psalmist refers to the stone, which is the one who comes from the name of Jehovah. We know who the stone is, Jesus Christ. So it's an interesting, interesting fact when you consider that, that the psalmist is writing with regards to Christ, and now you see this fulfillment happening where Jesus comes in, the true cornerstone, and now they're saying Hosanna to him. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, this is Psalm 118, and uh, uh, this is Psalm 118, again, refers to the stone, which is the one who comes from the name of Jehovah. This was all in celebration. But what were they celebrating? For some, they celebrated the true king of Israel. They celebrated the God-man, the messianic promise fulfilled. They looked on Jesus Christ and says, he, he has to be the Messiah. He has to be the God-man. He has to be the one that has been long foretold that would come and that would rescue us from our sins. 
So there were those people represented in the crowd, but there were also another type of people represented there. For others, it was a Messiah, or Jesus was a Messiah that would give them not what they needed, but he would give them what they wanted, and that was freedom from Rome, not freedom from sin. And so you have this celebration, these people that are divided in their belief, but at first glance it looks like, hey, this is awesome. These people are psyched up about Christ. But in reality, one was psyched up about him being a deliverer of, of, from their sins, and the other one was, hey, our concern is that you would deliver us from Roman oppression. And so those are two very different type of people. But more to that in just a second. So moving on through the scriptures, it talks about there being a, a cult, uh, a, a, a reference a reference to, to Numbers says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So the scripture says in Luke's gospel, to find a colt on which no one has ever sat. And I wanted to pull that from Luke's gospel because it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Why, why would Luke choose to use language like that? Why would he say, find a colt on which no one has ever Sat, and this is what I discovered. This is what 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 I found out. Under the mosaic economy, only those beasts which have never been worked were to be used for sacrificial purposes, and that's from Numbers nineteen, chapter two. I believe I said earlier that the quote of uh, that the quote, "Fear not, daughter of Zion," verse fifteen. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. That's that's. That's Zechariah 9.9, not Numbers. So Numbers is referring, numbers is referring to, uh, to, to why Luke would say, find a colt on which no one has ever set. And Zechariah 9.9 is referring to the fact that the king would come riding on, riding on, a, on, a, on a foal or uh, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's significant but because Jesus comes as a fulfillment of scripture and he finds the colt he finds the foal he points he points the donkey out and he rides on the donkey that was reserved according to old testament according to the mosaic economy that was reserved for sacrificial purposes and what is jesus essentially riding in on he's riding in ultimately to be a sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe but something happened as jesus was riding in and this is the second time that I can recall this has happened in the scriptures. When Jesus approaches the city, the scripture says that he began to weep. That he began to weep. Let me read to you from Luke's gospel. So it's in Luke chapter 19 if you want to make a, if you make a note of it. Luke chapter 19 verse 41 says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemy will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." So here's something that's happening as Jesus approaches the city. Jesus 
sees the true root of their belief. He sees their, their root motivation when he walks in here. I mean, just imagine, you see this crowd, you hear them singing Hosanna, and he knows they're talking about him. But because he's God, and because he knows the thoughts of man whenever he wants to know the thoughts of man, he sees right into their heart, and he sees that for many of them, maybe most, I don't know, but for many of them, they looked at him as nothing more than a means to get what they want, and that was to be freed from the oppression of Rome. And that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come that they might be freed from Roman oppression. He came to seek and to save sinners who are lost. He came to collect those that the Father has given to him. His primary concern is not Roman oppression. That's not his primary concern. But Jesus wept because he looked at, again, the devastating effects of sin. I mean, just last chapter, John eleven thirty five. 35, remember Jesus weeps. He weeps over the death of Lazarus. And we have to ask the question, why is he weeping over the death when he's come to raise Lazarus? It's because he's weeping over the effects of sin. Lazarus is dead. Why? Because of sin. Mary and Martha are, are, are broken. Why? Because of sin. And he sees that and he weeps for those that he loved because this is, these are the devastating effects of sin. You and I are not exempt from that. You and I, ex ex we experience it every single day of our life. Every day of our life we see tragedy happen. If you've been on Facebook at all lately or been on the news at all lately, you see about the young Afri African American man who was gunned down in the street. I mean, you see things like that and your heart breaks and you have a front row seat to all the evil that's in the world. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things that we see all the time. Not to mention the things that are expressed or exude from our own lives that are wicked, depraved, and dark. It's sin. And so Jesus looks on a people that don't believe in him as the one that will rescue them from their sins. They don't look at him as the true redeemer. They look at him as someone that would just give them what they want for the moment because they're uncomfortable under the oppression of the Romans. That's why he weeps. Jesus responds to the crowd with tears. These aren't the tears that someone would shed when they are overwhelmed with, overwhelmed with joy or when they're blown away with a particular gesture of kindness or generosity. Jesus weeps because he sees truth. Is the celebration the joy, is, is the celebration the, the joy that they expressed and the gratitude that they're expressing, is it legitimate? Absolutely it's legitimate. But he saw beneath the surface. He saw their true motives. He saw what was really going on. He saw that for many the lavish expression of joy has everything to do with what they wanted, but nothing to do with what they actually needed. And that was rescue from their sin. You see, I've mentioned it for the last two weeks. Leading up to this point, you have those that believed in a political Messiah, and then you have those that believe in a Messiah that can actually rescue them from the condemnation of their sin. So, of course, Jesus weeps. Of course, Jesus weeps because it's sin's detrimental effects that have caused those 
who trusted in him as a political Messiah, it sends effects that cause them to believe that way and miss the truth altogether. And that's what's happening in this text. I mean, there are other things there that I don't have time to highlight, maybe another time, but I wanted to focus on those things, those few key elements that we see there start to emerge from the text. And what I want to do with this information, what I want to do with this, which has emerged from the text, is I want to take the information and show you why it matters to you now, show you how you are to receive that and apply that. One preacher that I really enjoy listening to, his name is Steve Lawson, and Steve Lawson was asked the question before, what is the difference in preaching and teaching? Now, a lot of pastors, theologians, have a lot of different answers for this, but Lawson's answer was this, exhortation. He said the difference in preaching and teaching is exhortation. Exhortation meaning to urge someone to do something. So at this point in the sermon, I want to exhort you. (laughs) I want to call you or charge you, compel you to do something. Because that's what we're supposed to do with the scriptures. The scriptures are filled with great information, but not information just to be known. Not information that's just to be recalled or regurgitated, but information that we are to consider and that is to take root in our lives and to cause fruit to be born out of what we take in or what we consume. And so let's spend some moment deducing what it is that we get from the information that we've been shown. So I see here, I think I have three, three major applications or implications from this text. The first major application is this, make no mistake about it, sin proves to be a greater threat to us than anything or anyone that stands against us. Let me be clear with that, okay? This is the first application. Sin proves to be a greater threat to us than anything or anyone that will ever or has ever stood against us. Sin is a major threat. Sin is a big, big, big deal. Jesus wept over how sin had misguided their way of thinking. Instead of seeing him as the redeemer of souls from the condemnation of sin, they wanted him as something else, something to deliver them from something temporary that really paled in comparison to the condemnation of sin. They didn't get it. And sin is why they didn't get it. Their broken, fallen nature is why they didn't get it. What they missed, and hear this, and and consider what I'm about to say, what they needed most was salvation But the salvation they needed was salvation not from Rome, but from God. Do you understand what I'm saying? The salvation they needed was not from Rome, but it was from God. The scripture says that it is a dreadful, fearful, horrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, no one hates transgression. No one hates sin more than God. You understand that? That's why, that's why the scripture says, don't fear the one that can kill you, but fear the one that can kill you and cast your soul into hell. Who is the scripture referring to? God. 
That's who you fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We fear God. And I don't just mean respect. I mean fear God. Because God is not trivial. God is not trite. And God does not minimize or downplay or trivialize your sin or my sin. God deals with it. So what they needed was deliverance from God, not from Rome. You see, sin is breaking God's law. Sin is missing the mark. What sin does is, uh, what God has done is God has set a target for us. And that target is perfection. That target is holiness. And God says, you chase after this target. And if you miss the target, you have sinned. God says, here's the standard, here's the trajectory, here's the lane I want you to be in. If you get out of that lane, or if you get off trajectory, or if you miss the mark, that is called sin. Now that's why we need the perfect substitutionary atonement of Christ, because we will not hit our target, we will not make our mark, we will not stay in our lane, and we will not stay on trajectory. But Jesus did, met all the demands of the law, absolutely perfect. The Lamb who was slain, who was spotless, who was white as snow, offered up himself for those who would believe, become an atoning sacrifice, conquered death, conquered the grave, and all who would put on the Lord Jesus Christ will have life and have that life abundantly. You see, we need rescue from sin because sin that is not atoned for by Christ will be dealt with by God on us or on those who don't believe. Sin is completely contrary to the nature of God. It's completely contrary to His person, which is why He hates it so much. Sin, for the unbeliever, does this. Sin is what you are before it becomes what you do. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he talks about them before they met Jesus, and he says, you were darkness. It's not that you were just in darkness, but that you were darkness. You were the epitome of it. You were the embodiment of darkness. You were sin in that sense. You were absolutely separated from sin. Sin condemns you. The scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, which means by necessity that those who are not in Christ are condemned already, the scripture says. So sin condemns you. Sin causes God not to hear you. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins have made a separation between us and God and has caused Him to turn His face away from us so that He will not hear. Do you understand the text? God makes a conscious effort not to hear those who are lost. Now, of course, someone who calls on the name of the Lord according to the scripture someone who puts on the Lord Jesus Christ they are in Christ that's the promise of the scriptures but make no mistake about what God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah is that your iniquities have separated you from God and he has turned his face away from you that he will not hear so sin causes God not to hear you sin blinds you you can't even see the danger that you're in. Sin renders you incapable of any good. The scripture is clear when it says, for there's no one good, not even one. There's no one righteous, not even one. How do you respond to that? 
It's black and white. It's as clear as it can be. And it really shows the detrimental nature of sin. Sin renders you incapable of any good. So this is especially important for those of you that may be listening and you're resting on your goodness, you're resting on your works, you're resting on your church involvement, or you're resting on your helping little old ladies across the street or making your cakes or pies, you know, or whatever it is. Maybe you're a great dad, maybe you're a great mom, but that's not the standard for right relationship with God. Jesus and the imputation of his righteousness, that's the standard. And to get that, there must be genuine belief in the gospel of Christ. Sin renders you incapable of understanding the things of God, 2 Corinthians. Sin makes you an outsider. It excludes you, as Paul said, from the commonwealth of Israel, and it makes you strangers to the covenants of promise, covenants that are reserved exclusively for believers. It makes you an outsider. Listen, those are hard words for an unbelieving world. But believers are not exempt. We have our sin issues. We commit our sins. We categorize our sins. We categorize our sins in this way. Maybe you have uh, this category, the not as bad as it once was category. Maybe you have a sin in your life and maybe it's not as bad or you're not as given to it as you were before, so you put it in that category. Well, it's not as bad as it once was or maybe you maybe you have another category your respectable sins category you know well pride's not as bad as murder you know or my frustration when i'm in when things don't go my way i mean that's 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 hardly anything compared to rape you know those are our respectable sins category we somehow find these sins more palatable because we're comparing those to other sins that we consider to be worse what about the Sins I feel really bad about category. You know, I have this category, that category, and over here are the ones I really feel bad about, right? I, I, I got over these pretty quickly, but this one here or these here, I felt bad about that for quite a while. I don't want to revisit those. And I'm not saying it's bad to have a sin that you feel really bad about, but we categorize sin. What about our, hey, I'm willing to confess this sin category, or I'm not willing to confess this sin category? We do that. Believer, you and I do that all the time. We gather in our groups. We have our accountability groups. Those trellises, those structures, those, 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 you know, those gatherings, and we go around our circles or whatever, and, and we say, hey, here's my sin. Pray for me. And we keep sins right here at the surface because we don't want people to get into the basement we don't, want a people, we don't want people to open up this category into the sins that we will never confess. These are the sins that we want to forget about. And I don't blame you. I get it. I get it. I think it's crazy, but I, I, I get it. When it should be that we can confess anything. As a matter of fact, the Scripture says, confess your sins, one another, where you might find healing. What about the repeat offenders category or the justification of my sins category that's a big one this is when we make certain excuses to allow ourselves to continue to sin a few examples maybe someone has wronged you and wronged you in a uh, in a pretty horrific way and the 
society or culture says, hey, you can get back, whether it's with words or actions. You take revenge. You become a vigilante. Maybe that's in the justification category. You never have a justification for sin. You understand that, right? Maybe it's justified by it's the lesser of two evils. Well, I could be doing this, but I'm not. So we justify our sin. We keep watching that show. We keep going to that website. We keep talking about that person. Hey, at least, at least I'm faithful to my wife. What's a little gossip? You know, we have justifications. You can make any sin more palatable if you compare it to the, to the right sin. Sometimes we get into this moment of, or this mode of, well, I haven't committed that sin in a while. You know, at, le- at, le- at least it's been six months. You know, it's not like I lie every day. It's not like I click here or go there or view this every day. You know, I, I've, I've had some freedom. I've done well. And, you know, so we slip again and maybe, oh, I, I don't feel so bad, you know, because I've done so well for so long. Justification category. What about this category? The sins I'm going to commit and bank on grace category. This is otherwise known as the licentiousness category. And I want to be clear. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever given license to sin. God hates it. And I wanted to bring that out because it's a real problem. Because why? We are sinners. And we have to come face to face with this. We have to square up to the reality that sometimes maybe we trivialize or we minimize our sins. Because everybody else is doing it. So therefore it becomes a little bit more palatable because we're not the odd man out. Maybe there's safety in numbers. Maybe, hey, all of these people are doing this. All of these people are watching this series. All of these people are talking about this or indulging in this. But you know what? It's, it's, it's a million people or it's worldwide or whatever. Listen, God's standard is rigid. It is unwavering. And he hates sin. So we have a problem. We are sinners. And we can't get rid of our sin. Yes, Jesus has removed the condemnation of our sin, but we still sin. So what do we do? Well, the only advice I have time to give you, and to keep it simple, is this. You have to labor to see to it that you have a greater treasure in your life than the treasures that you have in sin. Jesus has to become so important to you. He has to become so valuable to you that when these occasions for sin rear their heads, the value of Christ will compel you away from the indulgences of your flesh. Application point number two of three. Our works should serve as the backdrop that brings truth into focus. Let me say that one more time. Our works 
should serve as the backdrop that brings truth into focus. I want to note something here. The scriptures uh, say the scriptures say that many believed because they had seen miracles, but it wasn't the miracles that saved because miracles aren't meant to be the means of salvation. If you remember from the text. If you remember from the text, maybe it was in Luke, I'm having a hard time remembering, but in one of these texts, in one of these gospel accounts, it makes it very clear. Look, these people had, it was in John, these people saw these things. They saw all of these great works, all of these great miracles, and they came together and they believed. Some of them believed legitimately, and some of them because they wanted Jesus to free them from Roman oppression. But here's the point that I want to make. The miracles of Jesus brought the truth of his word into focus. Imagine this. Imagine if you saw a man performing the signs and wonders that Jesus did. You may take time at that point to listen to what he has to say. Maybe that person has established a bit of rapport with you or some credibility. So you think, okay, something's happening, something's going on, so I'm going to listen. You see, it it was not the miracles that made the difference. It wasn't the miracles of Jesus as far as feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't those miracles that brought about salvation to those who were legitimate believers. But what happened was Jesus and his miracles, they validated or gave credence to or they highlighted or brought into focus the truth that Jesus taught. So here's what I believe we take away from this reality. The works that we produce should serve as the backdrop that brings the truth into focus. Not our truth, the truth. The truth, the one absolute truth. Jesus is Lord, Christ crucified, risen, and reigning, substituted himself as an atoning sacrifice for those who would believe, and those who believe and repent of their sins have his righteousness imputed to their account, their empty, bankrupt account, and then they, having been covered in that righteousness, can stand before God the Father in right relationship. That's the truth. And our lives should be a display or a backdrop that helps to highlight or bring into focus the truth that has changed us. That's what I take away from Jesus and his miracles and those who believed in them. So it's important that our lives are accurate representations of Christ and his truth, the truth, the gospel truth, the absolute truth that has changed us from the inside out. Our works don't save, but our works serve the purpose of highlighting and validating the gospel, the gospel that saves sinners. The third and final application from this text is this. For many, Jesus is a means to get what they need. And for others, he is a means to get what they want. The crowd was filled with believers, but their belief landed in two different categories. Those who want. And those who want are these type of people. These are the people who saw Jesus' miracles and responded with joy because he had the power to free them from Rome. These are people that don't want financial ruin, so they'll take Jesus. These are the people that want prosperity, so they'll take Jesus. They want a problem-free life, so they'll take Jesus. They want a little eternal insurance, so they'll take Jesus. They want to have their cake and eat it too, so they'll take Jesus. They want a good career, so you know what? I'll take Jesus. They want a healthy life, 
and they want health for their family. So you know what? I'll take Jesus. These are those who pursue Jesus because he can meet their wants and not their needs. You see, your need is not prosperity. Your need is not health. Your need is not a good, vibrant, robust career. Your need is not all of these things. Your need is rescue from the domain of darkness. Your need is to be brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's your need. So are you a want person or are you a need person? These are people who saw Jesus' miracles and responded with joy, not because he could free them from Rome, but because he could free them from sin. Because as I said a moment ago, what sinners need salvation from is God. Because God is the one who brings divine wrath and retribution on the sins of the world. You see someone who is a need person. They realize that I need an advocate, so give me Jesus. This is a person that says, I need a substitute, so give me Jesus. I need righteousness, so give me Jesus. I need hope, so give me Jesus. I need strength, so give me Jesus. I need wisdom, so give me Jesus. I need right standing with God, so give me Jesus. This is the difference between someone who is a want person in terms of following a Messiah and someone who is a need person in terms of following a Messiah. You see, there's a strong contrast between the two. But what about you? Whether you are a believer, whether you're a Haven Rich family, or whether you're someone from out of town or in town, someone who's a believer or not a believer, I'm asking you the question, what type of follower are you? What Messiah are you looking for? One that would meet all your wants, one that's going to make you rich, one that's going to be like those proponents of the prosperity gospel, or one who came to seek and to save sinners, to seek and to save those who are lost, the one who came to rescue us from darkness and bring us into the kingdom of his beloved son. What type of Messiah are you trusting in? Jesus did not come that you might prosper financially or that you might be healthy. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. To save the ones that the Father gave to him. And for those, it comes with a promise. A promise of a life that is much greater, that is much deeper, that is much more meaningful than anything this earth affords. Anything this earth offers up to you, what Jesus offers is better. If you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, let me encourage you. Go back and listen to this again because I've presented the gospel several times. But in a nutshell, let me be very clear. God has a standard and the standard is perfection. And you and I can't meet that standard. It was met in Jesus but Jesus and his gospel only affects those who believe in him. Only affects those who repent and put on the Lord Jesus Christ to use the Bible's language. The scripture says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. It says with the mouth confession is made into salvation. With the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have questions about this, if you have concerns, 
You can reach out to us over Facebook or you can go to HavenRidgeChurch.com and you'll find where you can send an email. That will come straight to me and you and I can have a conversation because this is why the church exists, to glorify God, to make disciples. And this is what we want to do. So hear this. Hear this today and respond. Respond to the truth of God's word that is able to take you out of death and bring you into life, not just life but abundant life. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would grant life to those who are dead. Lord, that they might be able to see and to savor Christ because of the faith that you would impart to them as a gift because otherwise they could not. Lord, would you cause us to be faithful as your mouthpieces? Lord, that your church would do the work of evangelists, would do the work of missionaries, Lord, that we would be intentional in our efforts to communicate truth, absolute truth, to our friends, to our families, to our neighbors, to an unbelieving world. Would you be so gracious as to holding us accountable to that call, to that task? And would you give us a zeal? Would you give us a fervency for that? Would you give us a conviction to see a world that is turned upside down for Jesus' sake? Lord, would you cause us to represent you well and to represent you rightly. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you that we can do this right now without the threat of our lives. And Lord, should that day come, we ask that you give us perseverance and we ask that you'd give us such a loyalty, love, and joy that the only thing that matters is Christ and considering his great worth and value. In Jesus' name, amen.